You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. The message that I have for you today is really kind of a, a fun conversation that I have had many, many times. In fact, uh, it happens often in our Momentum Leadership School every year. In our Momentum Leadership School that we do, we read through the entire Bible in nine months. And uh, they start right in Genesis and they go through. Sometimes we've broken it up a little differently, but they read the entire Bible. And one of the first things that we do, and we have a discussion about it every day that we're together in class. What did you read and what stood out to you? And what, what speaks to you about who God is? What speaks to you about what humanity is like? And, and one of the first stories that we end up getting to is in Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis 4, we have this story take place. So you've got the creation of the world has taken place in 1 and 2, and humanity has been created. You've got Adam and Eve, and then in you know, uh, chapter 3, we see sin enter the world. We see Adam and Eve eat this fruit that was not supposed to be eaten, and then they get you know, sent out of the garden, and you know, life is going to be difficult now, right? There's this curse, in a sense, on the world where we are separate from God. And so you know, there's these things that God declares over them as they leave the garden. And, and it's just kind of that there's going to be turmoil in life, right? And we kind of still get to suffer that. And so in chapter 4, we see a story start to take place between two people, Cain and Abel. And most people in the world have at least heard the premise of this story. You've got Cain and Abel, two brothers, you know, of Adam and Eve, the, the children of Adam and Eve. And you got this story that takes place where one kills the other, but I want you to see kind of why that takes place, and then we're going to talk about it and something that happens right there in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up with me to Genesis 4. If you don't, you can use your phone. Of course, we always have Bibles on the shelves in the back. We'd love for you to take one. It's yours to keep. So Genesis 4, and we're going to start right in um, verse 2, it says, Later she gave birth to his brother named Abel. So this is just telling us Cain and Abel are born. And it says, And when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. So you've got one who likes animals, one who likes plants. And when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. And Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. It says, the Lord accepted Abel in his gift, but he did not accept Cain in his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. So I've done messages on just this scripture alone. We see this moment where you've got Cain and Abel bringing a gift, and Abel brings this lamb. It says the firstborn of the best of his flock. So there's, there's a distinction made in this gift made, right? It's not just something it is the best of what he has. And it says that God accepted that gift, but then you've got Cain who comes and it just says he brought some. And there's not really any distinction made. It's just like he grabbed what was available and he brought it to God. And again, this whole premise just shows us that God doesn't really need the gift. He's interested in the motivation of our heart. Are we doing something? Every time we give on a Sunday, we kind of talk about this. We don't want to give out of, you know, compulsion. The Bible says that because there's this place where God isn't really interested in your money. He's interested in your heart. He's not interested in what we can bring him. He's interested in us. 
And so the symbolization of these gifts that are presented is really a symbol of their heart posture towards God. And so Cain, he gets rejected in this moment, and it's painful for him, right? He says he's angry, and he looks dejected. In verse 6, it says this, Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. Now, I feel this verse right here as a parent. Do your kids ever get mad at you for them getting in trouble? Mine do, every time. And I'm like, what's confusing here? And I'll just tell you a little story that just happened uh, two nights ago. So, so we, we went to a wedding. I had to officiate a wedding on Friday night. And Jeremiah can watch all our kids, so he's watching all the kids. And we get home, and we walk in the house, and, you know, according to Jer, there was no, sorry, Jer, I'm going to throw you into the bus a little bit. Uh, there was no real issues while we were gone, but we come in the house and we go, what's that smell? It smells like something's burnt. So we go up in our daughter's room to find that she found a lighter and decided to light lots of pieces of paper on fire in her room. Now you can imagine I was completely calm. Totally patient. I literally am like, what is happening in here? You know, the, the scenarios are going through my mind. Now, nothing bad happened, but there's burnt paper all over her wood floor on a wood desk. I'm like, oh, my Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for saving our children and our house while we were gone. But in this moment, I'm like, what are you doing? Now, she had been calling us at this wedding because she really wanted to go to the fireworks that were going on in Louisville on Friday night. So guess what happened? She didn't get to go to the fireworks. But you want to know what happened? She, she literally lost her mind, which is, you know, par for the course like me. Um, and she goes, I don't want to live here anymore. And she goes to run away, like literally, out the house. I don't know if your kids ever do that. Mine are really wonderful. And so I'm like, that's fine. Go. Take your lighter with you. <laughs> Bad parenting, okay? You know, she comes back moments later, right, to beg to go to the fireworks. And she doesn't get to go. So Jessica takes some of the kids to the fireworks. I stay home. I was going to stay home anyway with Mara. And so I stay home, and she is super upset that she doesn't get to go to the fireworks. And she's angry over it. And I'm just like, I'm not, you know, because I know where my level is at. So I just have to stop, and I just let her be angry. Now, Jer gets the job of going upstairs and cleaning up with Emma the mess upstairs. So Jer is upstairs, and he's trying to get Emma, who's not helpful, okay, to clean up the mess in her room that she created. And I hear Jeremiah up there, because she's angry. She's like, doesn't want to help, doesn't want to do anything. And he's like, what do you expect? You tried to set the house on fire. This is what Jesus, this is what God is saying to Cain. Okay, now put it back into this context. This is the point. This isn't a confusing moment for Cain. God is asking a rhetorical question. Why are you so mad? Just like I would ask Emma, why are you mad at us? You tried to burn our house down. Like this is not how that should work. But yet somehow when we get caught in the midst of something that we know we shouldn't have done, and that is the premise of this, Cain didn't try when he presented his gift to the Lord. He didn't actually put any effort into it. And so God says, no, no thanks, I don't want that. Because I really, I want your heart. I don't want your, your food, your plants. I want you. And so there's this place where Cain is caught in that and he's dejected and God's now kind of pushing his button to say, listen, what's the problem here? Why are you mad at me 
over this. And so we don't really see a resolution to this. And this kind of leads into the next part of the story. And really what I would call a very quick, slippery slope, right? So it says, why are you so angry? And, and then God gives him this warning, right? He says that you will, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, like many of us do, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. This is an incredible warning for all of us. That sometimes we know what's right in our lives, but we don't do it anyway. Emma was smart enough to know she shouldn't light paper on fire in her room. She knows that. She's smart. That's why she went and hid in her room to do it. But she knew it was there. And there's this warning that comes to all of us. Many of us know there are things in our lives we shouldn't be doing. And God wonders why we get mad at him when things go poorly because we did something stupid. Am I talking to the right people? Because this is all of us. I've done this a thousand times. Get mad at God, and then God somehow reminds me, uh, you did this, not me. <laughs> this was your choices, remember? Your choices led to this place. And just like that, you've got this place, but he then warns Cain. He's saying, listen, just do what's right, and everything will be fine. But if you don't, you need to be careful because sin is looking to control you. It's eager to control you. And then we see this quick, slippery slope that happens with Cain. Right? It says, but you must subdue it and be its master. And then the next verse. So he's warning Cain about not being controlled by sin in his life. And the very next verse is this. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Now, this is interesting to me because there's really no other context. We just know he kills him. We don't know the timeline between the previous verses. We don't know how Cain kills Abel. We just know that he really kind of premeditated the murder of his brother. And that is a very slippery slope from being a little bit angry about something to letting this thing control his life where he now kills his brother. So he kills his brother. And verse 9 says, Afterward... So after he killed his brother, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother, where is Abel? I, I, I love these scriptures. Now, I always put them in the context in kind of my brain because I do this to my own kids. Like, do you think God is confused where Abel is? He's not. I do this. That's, honestly, that's what I, I do in a situation with him. I'm going, what's going on here? I clearly can see what's happening. There's burnt paper and a lighter in her hand. I know what's happening here. But I want to know, I want them to say what's happening. And God comes to, to Cain, he says, where is Abel, your brother? And this is, this is what Cain's response is. And this is really where I want to focus today. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the NLT says, am I my brother's guardian? And this is a significant moment in Scripture. For one, it's the very first question that's posed to God from man. Now, God asks man quite a few things in the first few chapters. But here is the very first question that a man poses to God that's recorded in Scripture. And it's really kind of a rhetorical question because Cain thinks he knows the answer to the question, right? He's not really asking, am I my brother's keeper? It's sarcasm here. 
he's like, is that my problem? I, am I responsible for him? Because in his head, he thinks the answer is no. I'm not responsible for him. Now, he knows he killed him. But he's asking this sarcastic rhetorical question, am I my brother's keeper? And there's this question that gets posed in Scripture. Now, God doesn't answer him directly in this moment. But what we're going to discover, if you read all through Scripture, and even a couple of the stories that we're going to read today, is that truthfully there's a resounding answer to this question, are we our brother's keeper? And the answer is this, yes. There is a responsibility on our lives for our brothers. And the word brothers just is simply symbolic of others. That we are our brother's keeper. And we're going to see it throughout scripture take place. But we see this very first moment, this first huge act of sin that's you know after the apple. Where Cain kills his brother. And then wants to shuck the responsibility off of him. That he has anything to do with taking care of his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? That word there, if you look it up and you study a little more. It means to watch over. To oversee. And to preserve. Think about that. So he literally takes the life of his brother, and then kind of in a sarcastic, rhetorical way, he says, it's, is it my job to preserve him? Is it really my job to actually take care of him? And I would say yes. So I want to start with a story in Luke 5 that just would speak to this. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke 5. Luke 5, we've got Jesus now. So here we are many, many years later from Cain and Abel. And we're here with Jesus, and he's been calling his disciples. And, and actually, by Luke 5, Jesus has kind of become somewhat famous. People are trying to find him all the time. Everybody that comes to him seems to get healed and changed, and they're finding life and transformation. And so people are always looking for Jesus. And there's this story, this really interesting, unique story that takes place where Jesus heals this man. So we're going to pick up in verse 17. It says this of chapter 5 in Luke. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem, and the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. So you've got the religious people there. You've got people bringing people. It says in verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof, and they took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. Let's stop for a second here. So you've got this story taking place, and many of us have maybe heard this story. But if you haven't, you've got these men. They bring their friend on a mat. He's paralyzed. And he, they come to Jesus, and I find it interesting that the crowds kind of block them from even getting into Jesus. And, and, and some of the crowd is full of religious people. And I think there's some symbolism here that we have to be careful as religious people that we don't become blocks to those trying to come in and see Jesus. That we aren't the crowd that keeps the people most desperate for Jesus out. And so you see this moment, but you've got these men carrying their friend, and they can't get into Jesus, so they're so desperate for this situation to take place, they climb on the roof, and they vandalize someone's home. So as they take off these roof tiles, they break open the roof, 
and they lower him down in front of Jesus. Now, I, I have a hard time even picturing this taking place. Like, think that would have become a distraction, like someone's removing the roof while Jesus is teaching down in some living room type situation. But this is what happens. And they lower this man down, and it says this. Seeing their faith, Jesus says to the young man, your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm a little confused. I don't know if you are. But this moment is taking place because why? <coughs> the man is paralyzed. It's almost like Jesus is totally ignoring the external reality of this guy, and instead he speaks to the internal reality. Now, I find this really helpful for my understanding in different ways. One is this. Jesus always cares what's happening inside you more than he does what's happening outside of you. He's more desperate for your heart to be connected to him than he is for your life to look perfect on the outside. Remember that. But in this moment, this man has come for one reason and one reason alone in his head, which is to get healed, right? That's why it starts with this. It says, and the healing spirit was with him strongly, like, there's, this is why people are bringing their friends, to get healed. And so when he decides to say, seeing their faith, your sins are forgiven, this is confusing to everybody on multiple levels. One is the guy wants to be healed, but the other one is this. The guy didn't ask for forgiveness. Now this kind of messes with my nice, neat doctrinal theology about Christianity. Where I have to get someone to say I want forgiveness for them to be forgiven. But yet this guy does absolutely nothing. And I mean literally nothing. He can't even get himself physically to Jesus. He's completely dependent on others to carry his body to God, to Jesus, to get this healing. So this man, under no volition of his own, finds himself in front of Jesus, and then under no request of his own, finds his sins forgiven. And there's one caveat in the thing that says it. It says, seeing their faith. Now, the whole previous part of the story was about his friends carrying him and his friends tearing open a roof and his friends lowering him down. And then it says, Jesus said, seeing their faith, he spoke, young man, your sins are forgiven. This, this boggles my mind. That somehow the faith of this guy's friends affected his life. And I go back to this question, am I my brother's keeper? And, and, and think to myself, if this story is true, then it has to mean that there's a yes to that question. Because if my faith affects people around me and can actually affect their eternity, according to this story, then I am absolutely... My brother's keeper. I am. I have responsibility for people on my life. And so you see, this man who was paralyzed, who couldn't get to Jesus himself, these four friends had at some point, they're looking at their friend who's been paralyzed probably for a long time, maybe forever since birth. They hear of this man, Jesus, who can heal people, and something inside them has to say, we're going to take responsibility to get our buddy over there. Because if they didn't bring him, guess what would not have happened? Nothing. He would remain the same. And the same is true for all of our lives. The reality is we underestimate the effect that we have on the people around us. 
We underestimate the value of our own faith for people around us. And what's encouraging to me is this. It, it didn't actually even say the action of what they did was why Jesus' heart was moved. It said the faith they had was. Now, the faith and action, I believe, are absolutely connected here. But there's something that can happen if we simply can find faith in our hearts for the people around us who don't know God, who need healing, who need deliverance, who need encouragement, who need hope and joy in their life, then there's a possibility that it moves the heart of God for those things to actually happen. Our faith can change people's lives. Verse 21, it says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man. He said, stand up, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. I love this whole story. Because first this man comes to get healed. Jesus shows his first priority is the man's heart and his eternity. So he forgives his sin based on their faith. Not even on some other vocal expression of any kind, but simply on some internal faith that caused them to act upon it. This man's sins are forgiven. And then Jesus still heals the external issue of his life, which is him being paralyzed. And he says, stand up. And the man jumps up and goes home. I love this. But the whole story is hinged on a few friends who take upon the responsibility of their own to carry their friend to Jesus. Again, asking that question, are we our brother's keeper? And, and you know, that, the other words that go in there, are we called to preserve each other? Are we called to be guardians and overseers, those who care for one another? That's what that keeper word means. And in this situation, these friends took it seriously, and they knew that if we could just get him to this man named Jesus, something will happen. Imagine if our, our hearts were in the same position for people around us. Now, we might not have a friend who's been paralyzed for life, laying and living on a mat in the street, which is the probable life that this man lived. But we have friends in our lives, we have family members in our lives that are distant from God, that are broken in different ways. You know, we, we sung today, and or we sang today, and worshiped these songs, and Elaine kind of had this prophetic moment of encouraging us that there's freedom in Him. Like, that's the reality. If we would believe that there's freedom for people's lives, then we wouldn't just have to see something broken fully on the outside, but we would have faith that God could internally change and transform the lives of everyone around us. Sometimes the easiest thing we can do in faith is this. Pray. I think we so underestimate what our faith can do. That simply praying for someone in a consistent and enduring way can absolutely change their eternity. Prayer changes everything. I really believe it does. 
The other idea here is this. These men didn't have the answer in and of themselves. You know what they didn't do? They didn't go to their paralyzed friend on the ground and say, hey, let's have a Bible study. I've memorized 10 verses. You need to memorize these 10 verses. They just said, hey, man, you want to go with us? We're going to drag you over to this man. Honestly, it's like he didn't even have a choice. They don't say, hey, we asked his permission. They just said, we brought him. Bring someone to Jesus. Do whatever you've got to do to get them in the presence of God. That's why we talk about bringing people to church. Because simply, I know that sometimes people come in this room and they have all sorts of concepts about what church is like or what church people are like or what church people think like or how they're going to act. And they come in here, and I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had with someone who comes that's new, and they just said, I cried through worship and I don't know why. That's Jesus, man. That's not us. That's Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. I, I sat through, and I don't even know if I understood half of what you were saying. I've, I've heard people say this. I don't know if I understood half of what you're saying, but something just gripped my heart. That's God. That's putting people in the presence of God and waiting to see what he will do. Our faith can transform people. Our faith can bring people to Christ. Our faith can alter people's eternity. Will we actually believe that? Are we our brother's keeper? Let's turn a few chapters over. Luke 10. We've got another story here. We're going to pick up in verse 25. It says this. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do? To inherit eternal life. This is a very common question. In fact, what we see throughout Jesus' life, and it was very common actually in that day, was for Jewish leaders, religious leaders, uh, you know, the priests of the day, they would like to debate with each other. And the whole point of this debate was honestly to always kind of show one up on the other who was the smartest. So sometimes we see the Pharisees and Sadducees and these others coming to Jesus to debate with them. And, they, and, and I think we've sometimes portrayed it as like, oh, they're always just after Jesus. The truth is, it was just common practice to go find someone else who is becoming more popular than you and try to be better than them. Sound familiar today? And so the rabbis, they would actually debate with each other all the time. It was very common practice. And this was one of the most common questions that would be debated. What do we do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus, who's probably, honestly, I like this certain conversation because he feels a little fed up like, I don't want to answer this again. Right? Like, I don't want to have this conversation again. So he just says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? I love this. Uh, when, I, when I talk with people... Um, about the Bible, I've used this exact verse. I'll say, well, how do you read it? What, what do you think about this scripture, Pastor Gregor? What do you think about when the Bible says this about someone's lifestyle or this? And I go, well, how do you read it? Because Jesus wants to understand first, what's this guy think? What's he going to say? Does he have any understanding of the scripture at all? And so he says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said. Do this, and you will live. So there's Jesus. He's, he's already stated this himself, right? We see in Matthew 5, there's a couple moments where, one where Jesus says, all the law and the prophets is summed up in these two statements, and he quotes those exact 
words. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying all the law and the prophets can be boiled down to these two things. So this man answers well. And Jesus just says, right, do this, and you will live. But the man really didn't like that answer. So it says the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So here he, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy just said, say, well, who is my neighbor then? And what's interesting here is definitely in that moment, in that context of the world, in that day and age, his neighbor would have been very in a very obvious answer. So in that culture, everybody that was of different ethnic groups lived segregated. They did not live intermixed like we do in the United States of America. In every town, there was a Roman quarter. And you couldn't even enter the Roman quarter unless you were a Roman citizen. A Jewish person could not even get into the Roman quarter unless they had some sort of Roman citizen heritage. And so there was no intermixing of that. The Samaritans lived in completely different cities than the Jewish people. They wouldn't even live in the same city together. And so when this Jewish man's asking, who's my neighbor, he thinks again he knows the answer because his neighbor is all the people who are just like him. Because they, don't, they live in a segregated society. And so to him, my neighbor literally means the person living next door, and I can guarantee you that the person living next door is just another Jewish person just like me. So those are the people that he's trying to put this out that I'm called to love. But Jesus goes on to tell a parable in answer to this, because that's how he always answers things. <laughs> and so let me, let's read this parable. So Jesus decides to share a parable in answer to his question, who is my neighbor? So Jesus replies with this story, verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. Don't you love the description? A despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed him Mercy. And Jesus said, now go, yes, now go and do the same. So this man's caught, right? He understands now. But we see this story play out, and I want to give you some context and background to this. So, so the road from Jericho to Jerusalem that I, I've actually been on is actually currently right now, it's even still part of the West Bank, which is where the Palestinians live, which is where the, um, you know, the descendants of the Samaritans still are. And so even today, there's still this animosity that's going on between 
the Israelites, the Jewish people of Israel, and the Palestinians or the Samaritans of that day. So traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem was actually something you didn't want to do. Why? Because the people on the road that attacked this man were nearly almost 100% likely to be Samaritans because that was their territory. In fact, often when people would need to travel to Jerusalem, but they were coming from the area of Jericho, they would go all the way around this area to come into Jerusalem a different way because they knew the road was often ridden with other Samaritans that might do exactly this. So you've got, most likely this would be a story that could take place because um, people would be, tra- the, all the Jewish religious leaders would be traveling to Jerusalem, usually for some feast or some, something going on in Jerusalem. And so it would have been normal maybe for this to even take place if someone got attacked, a Jewish person, he's laying in the ditch, and now these priests and this temple assistant come by because they're also on their way to Jerusalem for the same feast or whatever is happening. And there's kind of a little bit of background that should matter to us to understand. The reason that these men look over at him. Now one, the priest, it says he walks by. He sees him there, but he walks by. Then it says the temple assistant comes over and he looks at him. But then he still decides to cross over on the other side of the road. One of the thoughts behind why this took place. Because they're not just being horrible humans, okay? I mean, they they are pretty bad for leaving him there. But this is why they would have done that. Both of them were religious leaders who worked, in the, or who worked in the temple. They were not allowed to touch anybody that had blood or any bodily fluids on them, or else they would be rendered unclean for a period of a week. And they would have to go through all of these rituals of cleansing for them to be allowed into the temple again. So what happened to them is this. They're on their way to the temple for a religious practice. They see a man, and they probably even have some desire to help him. But what happens is this. It becomes too inconvenient. It inconveniences their religious nature. Because they're on their way to temple. And they're on their way to honor God in the way they feel they're supposed to. And they see a man that if they touch and help him, they're going to be rendered unclean, and now they won't be able to go to temple. I think we do the same thing today. That sometimes we come to Jesus and, and we have this now righteousness over our lives, right? We have this imputed righteousness. It means that we're not perfect, but we get the perfectness of Jesus put on us. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so we put on this righteousness over our lives, and it's healthy for us to know we're under the righteousness of Jesus. But then somehow we start to act a little like this priest and temple assistant, and we look at everybody else as too dirty to touch. And we start to judge the world around us and like, well, I would like to help you, but man, you're just really messed up. And i got to get to church on time. I mean, I want to help you out, but that would be too inconvenient to my religious understanding. It would be too inconvenient to my religious senses, and I would have to do all these things. I'm not really supposed to be around someone who's as unclean as you. And so instead of actually being what we're called to be in the world, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves, meaning that if we were in the ditch, we would want someone to help us. That we would actually put aside even our religious practices to help those who are most desperate in their life. And this is what Jesus is teaching them. It's why he used the priest and the temple assistant purposely. 
Because he understood that they would have all of these religious reasons of why they weren't supposed to help certain people. Or why you can't help a Samaritan. Or why you can't help that other person who doesn't look like you or act like you. Or who doesn't live in the same part of the city as you. You would have all these religious reasons not to help them. But Jesus is breaking that down and saying, listen, I'll give you the most unclean situation. And I'm going to convince you that you were supposed to take care of them. But then we see a Samaritan come along, the person who's the least like the Jewish person in the ditch. And it calls him a despised Samaritan. They wouldn't talk to each other. They wouldn't trade goods together. They wouldn't sell things to each other. They wouldn't live in the same cities as each other. Yet this Samaritan sees this man in the ditch, and he takes him in. And he doesn't just take care of him, right? It's not like he calls 911 and then leaves the scene. He takes care of him. It says he uses olive oil and wine, and then he takes him to an inn and takes care of him. Then he pays the innkeeper money to actually say, let him stay here until he's better. And if I owe you any more, I'll come back and pay you. And he did this for a man who is the opposite of him. And so we look at this question again, am I my brother's keeper? Or we get to this question, who is our neighbor? Which is a very similar question, a rhetorical question that this religious leader thinks he knows the answer to. And Jesus is showing us that our neighbor is everyone. In fact, our neighbor is the people who are the least like us. The people who don't dress like us, who don't act like us, who don't vote like us who maybe don't do things in a normal way that we would think is how someone should live a good life. Yet God calls us to actually go out of our way and inconvenience our lives to take people in who are in the most desperate places. No matter what they look like. No matter matter if the way they're living and the choices they've made line up with our Christian thinking. In fact, I think it's the people we should be most going out of our way to love. People who don't look like us. And so we look at this question, am I my brother's keeper? And I think we see this resounding yes, that even we see the story of the Jewish, you know, guys who bring their friend to Jesus, and that would have been normal, right? Like, hey, this is my friend, and I love him, and I want to take care of him. I'm going to bring him to Jesus. But then we see another story that really ups the ante, and it's, are we going to take care of people who are nothing like us? Are we going to actually recognize that our neighbor is every person that God puts in front of our life? And then believe that maybe we shoulder a little bit of responsibility for their eternity. Now listen, you can't save anybody. You can't heal anybody. You can't do anything in and on your own that is going to change and transform a person's life. But you can get that person in front of Jesus. You can show them what Jesus has done in your life. You can be the person carrying the friend on the mat in all the symbolistic ways that we could imagine. We can bring people to the presence of Jesus. That can happen in our home. That can happen in our church. That can happen in your car. It can happen at any moment. But we are those who are called to be responsible for the eternity of others. You know, if you read in Ezekiel, it's much harsher scripture than this. There's a scripture where God is speaking to Ezekiel and he literally says, if you don't warn them of the things I'm saying, then the blood of their lives is on your hands. That's kind of a scary verse. 
to think that there might be responsibility put on us a little bit around the people of our lives for their eternity. But I think it goes back right to Genesis 4, all the way through to Jesus right till now, we see this resounding answer that we have responsibility for people around us. And it shouldn't be a discouraging, like, overly burdensome weight. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get us to realize we have far more influence in the faith of our lives in people than we think. That our faith can transform others. Our faith can open doors for people. Our faith can bring healing into people. Going out of our way and loving people that aren't like us and inconveniencing our lives for people around us, it can change people's eternity. And every one of us has the power to do that. Why don't we stand this morning? You know, it's summer, and I know that we, we all have lots of things going on and lots of plans, and people are camping, and they're spending time out on the water and doing all sorts of fun things. And one thing I love about summer is we honestly tend to spend more time with people than we do other parts of the year. And I think to myself, every time that we are with people, it's an opportunity to ask God, what is it you want me to do in this moment, in this situation? That every time we're sitting with a friend or going to coffee with a friend or sitting at the beach with a family, that there's a moment there that the faith that's in your life could actually affect them. Now, it's not every moment of every situation of every day, but I'm telling you this. It's not nearly as uh, sparse as we think it is. <laughs> I think God gives us an opportunity every day. I wake up most days and I ask God, okay, who do you want me to talk to today, Jesus? Who do you want me to encourage? Who do you want me to reach out to? Because I'm telling you, there's an opportunity every day if we'll listen. If we'll see in our eye who is our neighbor, who has God put in, in front of our lives today. So this is what I want to do. I just want to pray over you today before we release you. I want to pray this, that God would kind of change our vision and even maybe change our mindset to realize that our faith affects the world and then for us to see the people around us that we're called to affect. God, we just thank you for what you're doing this morning. God, we thank you that you don't just kind of put us out on our own and, and even maybe have the same attitude as we've seen in some of these scriptures going, well, I created them and now it's their problem to figure it out. God, we thank you that's not the case. God, we thank you that you took upon yourself the responsibility of every person's sin. God, you took upon yourself the responsibility of bridging that gap between us and the Father. God, we thank you for what you've done. Now, Father, we want to act in the same way. Jesus, we don't want to have a sarcastic question answer. Are we, are we responsible for anybody, God? We want to say we are responsible for our brothers and our sisters in our lives. God, I pray right now today that you would just maybe take the blinders off to see the opportunities. God, maybe even convict us in certain ways where we have not loved those who are not like us, where we have not gone out of our way and inconvenienced ourselves enough when someone's in need. But God, let us step up to those opportunities, showing the world your goodness. God, I ask your blessing over every person in this room, every person online today.
God, that you would minister in every way that they need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a blessed day. Just want to remind you, if you want prayer, there's always folks at the back. We'd love to pray for you. Have a blessed day. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.